How's it going, everybody? Brian Alvarez and Dave Melter here. Wrestling Observer Radio, January 11, 2018. Figure4online.com slash wrestlingobserver.com. Very happy today to be joined by Liam O'Rourke talking his new book, Crazy Like a Fox, the definitive chronicle of Brian Pillman 20 years later. Liam, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much, Brian. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You know, this book is, in fact, the definitive chronicle of Brian Pillman 20 years later. I think, I, I think, I think it's the best biography written, you know, like not autobiography, but the best biography written on a wrestler that I've ever read. And, wow. And in saying oh, that, wow. In, wow. Saying, in saying that, it's probably tougher for me to say that because it's, it's um, you know, I know the story pro- real, real well, most of it, and... I would like, you know, I would be more apt to see more inaccuracies in this in, in than almost any other biography of virtually any other wrestler, you know, aside from a few others. And it was incredibly accurate, um, especially, you know, when we're talking about a story where the story essentially, you know, other than the, the stuff with the family at the very end, the story essentially ends over 20 years ago. So we're talking about, you know, going back, researching yeah. stuff from 20 to um you know from his childhood back to you know early 60s and his high school days and all that and the book was i mean spot on accuracy i am so impressed with i'm so impressed with the book i've told many people this so well liam let's start with i guess thank you I think we got a little bit of a delay. We'll do our best. So, Liam, I guess let's start with talking about how the book came about. I mean, tell us about your your decision to write this, what it was about Pillman, and the whole process. Yeah, sure. Um, so, basically, I've, I've, I've been a long time kind of uh, obsessive, I suppose, of Brian. Um, I, I thought that he had this, yeah, as a fan, you know, kind of just thought there was an intangible quality that he had. Um, that very few had and kind of captivated my imagination uh, when I was very young. And uh, as I kind of got older, and obviously he passes away, um, I kind of dilly-dallied with the idea of getting to the business myself in like 2002 and 2003. Uh, I trained at the FW Academy in Portsmouth down here in England. And, uh, and um, as I was doing so, obviously you, you take watch and you watch the guys who you think are great, uh, along with the litany of the, the, the usual suspects of the guys that you always watch when you're trying to learn, um, I really, I, I would always watch Brian. So I thought he was like an all-time great in the ring. Obviously, he was very, he was very, very good. Um, but there was just that, that intangible quality that kind of stuck with me. And there's a few guys like that where, for whatever reason, you know, there's just that, that unique charisma that kind of you're kind of drawn to. And, uh, and over time, I would always just kind of research Brian or try and figure out little bits. There was always something about him that would, you know, again, I would always just want to know more. And it's kind of the, the brilliant thing about Brian and what makes it such a fascinating story, I think, is that I think there's a general knowledge of Brian's story because he, he led a well-chronicled life. But, yeah. but the deeper you dig and the more you look, the, the more interesting, the more captivating the guy becomes. And and it was just over the period of, of many, many years, I was just kind of amassing this collection of little tidbits and Pillman stories. And again, it's about two years ago, I want to say now, that uh, I'd watched the WWE's DVD one more time, just you know, to have it on in the background one day. And it just kind of jumped out to me that, you know, so much of this story was missed in that DVD. And, I, you know, there's a lot of great stuff written about Brian. But I, I honestly think, and especially in retrospect, that it would, I thought it would just take a book to, to tell the full story, to, 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 tell, to be as, as in-depth as I think it needs to be for a guy as 
unique as Brian. And, uh, and, and that was really where it came from. And as soon as I started talking to the people that, that knew Brian on a real level throughout the course of his life, it just kind of jumped out to me that not only is this a project that, that could be done, but it probably should be done. Because I think there's a lot of lessons uh, that are still kind of pertinent today. But it's, yeah, in terms of, of looking back, it's just a fascinating story. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you did really well was um, the way you chronicled the WCW years as it related to Brian um, and the ups and the downs and everything like that. I mean, it's a real fascinating look at what WCW was, the changes in leadership, and and a wrestler, a talented wrestler, but not a top wrestler, having to t deal with these different changes. And I mean, I think one of the things that, that, that I liked about the book so much is, you know, when, when all this was going on through Brian's life, Brian was, was a guy who, who I knew, you know, pretty well, we were, we were definitely friends, but I never, you know, it was, it was, it was, I never really uh, understood the gist of the story because for, for, you know, I mean, I, I, I knew some stuff about him, but it's like, he, we we I mean literally we never um, we almost never talked football even though football was a big part of his life I mean only in passing and a lot of the the street fight stories and stuff which I knew from other people I mean we never talked about that I mean we only talked we literally talked personal and professional personal stuff in professional wrestling business um, and I mean it was weird to me it's like I knew he like one of the things is I knew he played hockey I mean it was in passing. But it wasn't until after he died that I had any concept of what a great ice hockey player he was. You know, I mean, the football, obviously, I knew that. I, I knew that before he was before he ever became a wrestler. I knew about him as a football player at Miami of Ohio. You know, I mean, and, and Cleveland and the um, Cincinnati Bengals. But um, the whole thing of like the throat surgeries, like I, I knew, obviously, that he had those throat surgeries. But I never knew, like, he never went to me with the detail of his childhood or anything like that, like the sisters told you. And that was, you know, I again, yeah. I'd heard stories like that. But to see it like that, it really fascinated me. And um, the other thing is, is, is in reading the book, it really hit me just what an unbelievable character he was. And, like, when he was alive, I never thought of it. He was just Brian Pillman to me. He was not this unbelievable character. <laughs> I mean, he was... He was a small. He was a small guy who made it to the NFL and who was an All-American football player who was really small and a really tough guy and a great athlete and and he had a um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He you know, I mean he he had a, an inner drive that was unreal. I mean I knew all that, but to see it kind of written out and um, you know one of the things that that um, I mean you even had the stuff about like I, I don't you know I don't think anyone really understood and I did is what a genius Brian was. You know, and I mean, I'm reading the book and it's like, yeah. you got that. You got that, too. You know, I mean, I was like, you, you really got <laughs> so much of it. I was I was just, you know, when it was over, it's like, man, you I, I couldn't even add stuff to it. You got I mean, I mean, little things, but you really got it. You know, I was tremendous. And you, you interpreted it. I think you interpreted it so well, too, in the sense of I, I mean, a lot of people could have oh. those facts and, you know, just the interpretation of them is would be I'd go, ah, it's all wrong. And then with you, it was like it was spot on. No, well, thank you very much. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to kind of touch on there because, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that was one of the main reasons I kind of wanted to do the book was because I really thought that, you know, when you, when you kind of put it together, the context that kind of falls into place, I mean, that's, that's just, it, it, like I said, it's captivating. It really is. And it, one of the things that I really kind of, I, you know, I always would hear is, is how smart Brian was and how much of a kind of a genius he was in many ways. And 
what you mentioned there about how he wouldn't really talk to you that much about anything other than the wrestling side of things and business and stuff like that. There's a, it kind of came up when I was doing the book, which was kind of funny because I wasn't expecting it. But when I would, you know, I would talk to like, you know, like a Kim Wood or a Mark Madden or a Bruce Hart, and I get all these kind of crazy stories about things that Brian did. And then I talked to like Colin Bauman, for example, who was like the, the editor of the WCW magazine. And I kind of like mentioned Brian's personality in that regard. And Colin said that, you know, well, yeah, I kind of saw a little bit, but not really. He wasn't that way with me. And I think it wasn't really until I spoke to you where you kind of put it in, into a kind of a great context where you, you, you pointed out, like, Brian had kind of a sixth sense of, like, how to read people and kind of how to, you know, kind of speak to them on a level that spoke to them specifically. And, like, I remember you, you, met, you said to me that you know, if he had a salacious story about something that happened at three in the morning, he'd call Mark Madden. But if yeah, he wouldn't call me. Luther's, he'd call you up in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah, he'd call. He'd, he'd call. He'd, he'd call me if it was about Luthez. But if it was, if he was in bed with somebody and he wanted to play, you know, uh, and he wanted someone to hear him having sex with somebody, he'd call Mark Madden, not me. And I mean, that's just, you know, that's just, you know, that's just a difference between, you know, you know, again, yeah, you know, I mean, like, and and Mark was a really, really good friend of his, um, you know. But it was like, yeah. I, I even knew from, you know, I know Mark pretty well. I mean, not not lately, but I mean, you know, I mean, I know, but I've known him forever. And I mean, the the point on this is is that like. Mark and I talked a lot about Brian and we, you know, we were very different friends. We were both friends of Brian, but we were both very different types of friends of Brian. I mean, he knew Mark was into certain things and got entertained by certain things. And he knew me, you know, it was more um, the business of wrestling and, and certain personal life things, you know, certainly, I mean, like women and stuff. We, 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 hmm. we, we talked about different types of women stuff, not, not the wild stuff, the, the more basic stuff, I would say. Yeah, and, and, and the interesting thing about that is that I think that kind of, it did come out, and Kim Wood, who was just superb in, in terms of oh, talking yeah. to him, um, and really kind of stands out, and he's just one of the, the sharpest guys I've ever spoken to in my life, he's just ridiculously clever. He, he's he's amazing, one isn't of the he? Things that he, he's, he's awesome. He's, he's an absolutely Kim amazing person. Oh my God! I mean, you know, just to people who don't know, so Kim Wood was the strength coach of the uh, of the Bengals, but he's the guy who, um, if you ever in the old days, you know, ever exercised on Nautilus equipment. Kim was one of the designers of Nautilus. And then after him and Arthur Jones had a falling out, he started the hammer strength. So if you're ever in a gym and you see hammer strength, that's pretty much him and him and Gary Jones were the guys who um, designed the hammer strength equipment that's in like every major gym in the country. And and he was a he was one of the first yeah, yeah. if not the first strength coach in the NFL, but he was one of the first for sure. And I mean his and his his mindset towards training is is very unique. I mean, you know, he taught me a lot about about training, actually, but, so, um, among other things. But he's mm. he's extremely well read on a million different subjects. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and, and it really kind of and actually indirectly, I think that really helped what you mentioned before, Dave, about the, kind of the perspective and the context that these stories kind of came out in because. You know, early, very early in the process, Kim was one of the first people I spoke to, and, and as you can imagine, I spoke to him for like six hours at a time on several <laughs> occasions. Um, and but, but, but one of the things that was great was he would be able to kind of give that context. And again, one of the things that's really interesting about Brian to me was that he was smartened up to the business by somebody outside the business before he got in because he wasn't, he didn't dream about yeah. it growing up. You know, that wasn't him. No, you know, no, he didn't. He, 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 he was he kind of looked at it through a different lens. Yeah, he wasn't a wrestling fan growing up, as far as I know. We never talked. I mean, he saw it. He watched it some, but it wasn't like, you know, he was a he was a guy who's, you know, he was a guy who was an overachiever in football, was what he really was, yeah. 
Oh yeah, well, that's that's the kind of thing that comes. It's one of the uh, the kind of prevailing themes of his life, and it's kind of unfortunate because he was one of those types who you kind of look at him and you think, you know, in, in football and in wrestling, I think this is the case. He was an overachiever in so many regards, but at the same time, there was like that element of underachievement too, because you can just see the potential for so much more, and it's a very mm-hmm. kind of as as is typically the case with Brian. There's so many kind of contradictory things like that that. Just really stand out, but I mean, when it comes to Brian and the way he dealt with people, one thing, yeah, what I was going to mention with Kim before was that Kim had said to me that when it came to talking to different people in different ways, I mean, Brian, when it came to wrestling, but from what I understand, I mean, it was like a full time thing where it was all about knowledge gathering and, and kind of you know, dealing with different people in a way that spoke to them to, you know, whether it was to, to appeal to them or just to, to again to kind of absorb more knowledge, whatever it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I just remember he would, um, I mean, his understanding of, of reading people backstage and stuff was uh, was real good. You know, it was real good. He, I mean, he knew he had his friends. He knew, you know, I, 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 mean, I mean, look, look, the story of Brian Pillman, Eric Bischoff and Kevin Sullivan to me is still like probably the single most fascinating story <laughs> in the history of professional wrestling, how that all went down. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I guess you could kind of tell it since it's it's your book, but um, you know, when I think back about it, I mean, I, I, I was aware of it at, at a certain point, not, not at first, but I was aware of it at a certain point, what he was doing. And I couldn't believe, you know, it's like, it's like he told me, he told me what he was doing and I couldn't believe that he pulled it off. You know, I mean, the thing about the fake release, because he told me he told me that ahead of time. You know, he was he was going to work them into giving him a fake release and then he was going to negotiate with WWE to drive his price up. And I go, yeah, right. And he actually got a legal release (laughs) that was fake but real and started negotiating with WWE to to drive his price up. And I mean, you know, the tragedy of all tragedies and and it's in the book is that honest to God, if if Brian didn't have the Humvee wreck. I really do believe that those next five years of Brian's career, that, that he would have been, um, I'm not going to say at the Austin level, but I don't think he'd have been that, I mean, I think he'd have been at the level right underneath him because I think he could still go at a, at a, at a certain degree and he understood how to work by then, which was important. He was a, a unique, great talker and he was in a good atmosphere in the sense that WWE at the time needed to make stars and they did spend a lot of money on Brian. So he was gonna be gonna, gonna get a chance to be that and unfortunately i mean he was just he just couldn't go anymore and it was just so sad watching him at the end trying to to wrestle when you know like like you wrote which was so apt is that if if this was now he would just he would not they would not allow him to be a wrestler and they probably would have made him a color commentator and shut him down he probably would have been an awesome color commentator no yeah oh yeah but I mean, and that's the thing too is like it was. I mean, yeah, you, you always hear, you know, the the, the whole how bad that Humvee wreck was. But again, going into the detail in the book, I mean, that was just frightening. How bad that was, and and just you know the kind of the scope of the damage on him physically. And and yeah, because the the whole thing with the loose cannon, which really was just so much fun to kind of go into and write about, was he. It was so involved and he thought about so much and it was it was just from every angle he tried to play the game in a way that he was finally gonna he was finally gonna get where he wanted to be the entire time and i i i always kind of i, I think i mentioned this, uh, this to you on the phone we talked uh, for the book is that when you watch that kind of period right before the humvee wreck it's like watching 
I always think of Art Bar, like that last year of Art Bar's life, where it's like you're finally seeing a guy who you knew was good, but he, it's like the personality has just fallen into place, and he's grown into the present. Oh, yeah. And he's just he's, superb. He's, he's just about to take superb. off. Like, yeah. almost, just the little things. Yeah, the little things. It's like watching, again, like after the, uh, the, 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 the Stu Hart anniversary show and, and, and uh, you know, Bad Company, you know, Bruce and, and Brian are working with uh, Dory and Terry Funk and just seeing how Funk is, you know, in that match where he, you know, he's just doing the, the usual Terry Funk shtick and he's just, you know, of course, he's brilliant doing it. And just to see Brian kind of pick up little bits of that and kind of doing the same things and it's just like, he's just, he's just completely grown into himself and unfortunately he, he grew into it, you know, as you know, better than most probably grew into it way too far yeah 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 so uh, kind of like what's your take as far as like that um the whole situation with bischoff and and kevin and and brian on on how that that thing started and kind of like where it went and everything i mean i know the i i know the goal you know because i was we talked about it constantly and and brian you know for people yeah. who don't know brian never wanted to go to wwf i mean it was circumstances that 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 put him there but he was his his goal you know people go oh everyone wants to go to wf his goal was well i mean his goal was to make the most money possible for the longest period possible but his goal was absolutely wcw and 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 to be a main event or to be a you know a lex luger level or or like like guy and you know in, in so many ways i went when you know because the, because of the luger thing and me and him talked about luger for forever the funniest aspect of it is that you know, if Brian was given the the, the the shots that Lex Luger got, I, I mean, I think people would be talking about Brian as an all-time great pro wrestler. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And I think that, that was, but, but again, that kind of, even, and he'd seen, you know, chance after chance after chance kind of either, I mean, he made the best of whatever he was given and he did, you know, I mean, the Hollywood Blondes is a classic example kind of leading yeah. up to this point where, I mean, that tag team was so awesome and they were handed that not to be really all that big of a deal, but they made it a big deal themselves because they were both so hungry and, and yeah. both wanted to be, a, you know, something important on the card so much. And again, it got shut down and they did nothing with Brian. Of course, Hogan comes in and it pretty much becomes, you know, in effect, his company. He's running it. Um, he's kind of calling the shots and, and dictating the direction. And that was kind of the, the situation Brian found himself in was in this environment where it's pretty much controlled by one guy. How on earth am I going to manipulate the situation? Because the contract was coming due in like six months at the time he, he conceived this and, and sat down at Kim Wood's kitchen table. And, and Kim had said to him, yeah, we've got to hash this thing out because if you don't go into that negotiation heart, you're going to be in the same spot for the next three years or the next two years. It probably would have been um, mm -hmm. as they did it at the time. But... And it was just, you know, how can we do it? And, you know, he'd, he'd exhausted every logical method that you possibly could. I mean, he'd been a singles baby face, and he'd done real well, and they shut him down. He'd been a heel tag team star with Austin, and they shut that down, too. You know, he did, he, you know, he kind of flirted with the heavyweight scene. He, you know, he, he was getting wrestled with live and the light heavyweights. He did, he pretty much exhausted a lot of options. And at the same time, they'd kind of been misusing him for about a year or so, because Hogan's regime really didn't have a lot for him. And it's like in this in this situation where you're just kind of floundering, what are you going to do to kind of stand out and, and, and drive your value up to the point where you become a hot commodity? And again, it's what it's, like you say, it's one of the more brilliant things in, in the history of wrestling when you really look at it is that he just figured out that in this company that is just so unorthodox and such a shambles in many ways, the way that he was going to get ahead was not by doing anything conventional. It was going to be by 
manipulating Bischoff. <laughs> it's going to be quite blunt. And, and, and that was the, the interesting thing in the book, is the breakdown of, of the mentality for me of, of when Brian and Kim are putting that together and then kind of the step-by-step of how they kind of figured out that, you know, Bischoff, this guy who has pictures of himself kickboxing in his office and, and really wants to portray himself as someone who is a tough guy and, and, you know, and he always kind of you know, wore that karate thing on his sleeve. And, uh, and I think, you know, to, to a degree, I think that it was very important to Bischoff because yeah, you've got to consider as well, I, from what I would, uh, yeah, from what I kind of surmised, at least from, from talking to people who were there, is that Bischoff, Obviously, he was kind of, you know, he, well, you know, he didn't really have the track record in, in wrestling, so to speak. He was kind of, you know, he, he was the, the, you know, the game show host lookalike who came along and, and got the spot, and people were very surprised when he got the spot. And it was very important, I think, to him that, that people believed he knew what he was doing. And I think that was really what honed in there with, with, with Kim and Brian figuring out, but you know what? If we give him the chance to play him master manipulator, if we give him a chance to make him look like he's smarter than all the guys... Yeah. That would appeal to him. And in the meantime, we yep. could get away with all of this stuff that would inadvertently, but not really inadvertently, be driving Brian's value because the, the insider audience is going to gravitate to this. And, and, and there is going to be a segment of the audience, not necessarily the segment of the audience that would tune in to watch the show or buy a pay-per-view or anything like that, but there is going to be a certain segment of the audience that's going to make a lot of noise because of this. And when they do... You know, Vince and Bischoff, or even if not Vince, Vince's confidants at the time, like Jim Ross and Jim Cornette and Bruce Pritchard, they're going to hear it. And yep. when, when you become a hot commodity and, and you, you lure Vince, the game's on. And, and it's, it's a bizarre set of circumstances. And I just wish I could have been in the room when, when Brian first went up to Bischoff and pitched this zany character and what they were going to do that first time because... I can only imagine the conviction that he had and, and, and was able to convince Bischoff that, you know what, let's, let's work the boys, let's work everybody. Let me jump in here very very quickly because one of the things that you mentioned in the book about this period and the loose cannon character, you, you tie all of this into the early days of the internet and AOL and the folders that a few of the wrestlers set up, which I remember vividly, by the way. The... Book kind of explains the idea that this was this loose cannon character. Everything that he was doing was like right place, right time. It was like the perfect place and the perfect time for this. Tell everybody a little bit about that. Oh, and yeah. also, in your opinion, would this work today? I think that when it comes to okay, so so with with it, it being the perfect storm, it really it was the perfect storm in so many ways because the timing of the, of, of the Raw and Nitro going head-to-head right as Brian, you know, Brian's contract was coming up eight months after the, the dawn of Nitro. And so you know, the competition was growing more fierce, things were getting more personal. You were seeing things like, you know, Huckster and Nacho Man on, on, on Raw and, you know, Vincent Mann talking, you know, daring Ted Turner to in, enforce a drug policy and things like that. Like, you know, Vince had never been concerned with the competition prior to that. But all of a sudden, you know, his company's looking a little bit secondary, perhaps. And it, been, it was never more important to Bischoff that people thought that WCW was, was you know, had the one-up either. So the fact that he was able to, at that point in time, have his contract end. I mean, a lot of guys probably would have just kind of coasted along or, or whatever, but he realized that, you know, this, the, the timing of this is perfect to get the bidding war going. And at the same time, like I say, ECW was growing in popularity. You know, ECW had a ton of buzz, even if it wasn't the most you know, viewed show in the world. 
it, it got a ton of coverage. Anything that happened in ECW became a talking point. Yep. At the same time, the internet, like you say, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't the complete dawn of the internet, but it was it was the embryonic stages, certainly. And and, and AOL, you know, they had like a the, the online, you know, the the grandstand wrestling section where you know, guys would have their own folders and interact with fans, and it was very kind of minimalist. But it, you know. At that precise moment, with all these things kind of coming together, Brian just looked at... And Brian was a lot more aware of that kind of thing than most. I think that was kind of another one of the things that kind of comes out, is that Brian really studied pop culture, and Brian looked around and, and saw what the world was saying, and he loved to go on the internet and just you know, kick up the hornet's nest anywhere he could. And, uh, and it, was all, it was all tied around that same theme of, if I can make a loud enough noise in this underground element then it's good. the wood's going to get around because that voice had never been more powerful at that point in time. You know, you had, it, it, how, how bizarre does it seem, you know, a couple of years before King of the Ring 95 that fans might be chanting the name of another wrestling promotion at a WWF pay-per-view, but it happened at King of the Ring 95. And it, it was just that there was that, that general kind of underlying, I want to say resentment, but that's certain, that there's certainly a kind of a smattering of, of displeasure amongst hardcore wrestling fans at that point in time with what the big two were churning out. And things were getting interesting with, with Raw and Nitro and WCW and the WWF. But that kind of discontent was still kind of bubbling under. And so for him to become kind of the guard to that audience, for lack of a better term, to kind of be the person to embody kind of the, the, the resentment towards WCW and Bischoff and to be able to you know, do this hot character at this perfect time in a way that appealed to all these people, he just got a ton of press. And it was it was... I mean, it became easy for him after a while. He was just, he was doing so many different things. A lot of people know the story about him trying to get on the pitch at the Super Bowl, which would have been enormous and would have been incredible if he'd have pulled it off. Um, there's a story in the book about how he, he wanted to gate crash a WWF house show in Madison Square Garden, which I thought was it's just a, a hilarious story because if he'd have pulled that off, I, I do wonder, <laughs> I do wonder what Vince would have thought um, and if he'd have found it as appealing to go after Brian, but... I mean, at this crucial point in time in the war, in the wrestling battle, yeah, Brian looked around and he saw so many different ways to manipulate the audience. And I guess that was, you know, that was the crux of it. I mean, and we go into the book about how all the different mediums Brian looked at. I mean, he really became kind of obsessed with kind of the, the, the art of manipulation and con man culture. And I mean, he read a lot of con man literature. And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, you watched the, you know, the movie House of Games, which he, he fell in love with, which is, which is all about a, a group of con men uh, manipulating somebody. And it's just, this, this is what he, that's the lens he looked through when he was doing this, was, was manipulation, letting people think that they were in control when really he was. And they don't know it, but he does. And again, when the time for him to actually pull off his, his kind of coup de gras, if you will, yeah, he had that Hummer wreck and that kind of, that kind of, uh, skip to the finish unfortunately yeah you know the other thing um that that interested me and i i you know i kind of was aware of it but it really hit me was i mean again i think most people think that that brian died in the hotel room of a drug overdose and that really isn't what happened um that brian's heart brian's heart you know was like eddie guerrero and it was like Benoit was going to be and a lot of the guys from that generation i think is a lot of the smaller guys that juiced themselves up um, that isn't good for you, and and plus Brian had a bad family oh. history. Brian had a bad family history, some of which I knew, but I didn't realize it was as deep as as you got into. You know, in, in the sense of, you know, I mean, I, I knew Brian's father died very young. Um, and Grandfather died same age, same day. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 
But I mean, the thing is, is, is Brian, for all of his great athletic ability and everything, his heart was, you know, was was in trouble and the steroids that he used in football and, and, at, and at times in wrestling um, didn't help that in at all. And even if everything had happened, you know, I wonder, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I, I think if, if, if there was no drug involvement, I, I'm, I, I would I would like to think that he would have lived longer. But it, it's like, you know, would he have only lived to be 50 or 45 or something like that? I mean, it's like or if he had not had the Humvee accident, would he have had a heart attack within a year or two anyway? Well, didn't he? He tried to get insurance, which which I, I think I actually sort of yeah. read that story. But he tried to get insurance, and that's when he found out that his heart wasn't, or or that he that you know his his situation wasn't uh, so so great because he wouldn't he he couldn't get a lot of insurance at the time. And you know another thing, there's yeah. a lot of questions yeah, there's, there's about this because let, let me well, just, go ahead, go ahead. Let me just jump in real quick. There's a lot of questions about that too because when he went to get the life insurance, I mean there there's a there's a deal in the book where it talks about how he'd been told. You know, you're drinking too much. And, I mean, there's so yeah. many questions I have that we can't answer, but, I mean, there's the questions about drinking. Was it actually his heart, and they told him, in fact, it's the drinking? What, what, did he, was he actually having heart problems? If he'd been able to run and be athletic, would he have noticed that he had heart problems at that point? Would he have been out of breath like Eddie Guerrero in his last year or so? The Humvee accident, they, you know, Kim Woods is talking about his head's the size of a pumpkin. Okay. Oh, geez. When he, we, did he have we, a serious yeah. head injury? I mean, did he have something that... Well, he, ha he had to have had a yeah, serious like head injury. Yeah, like how did that affect the rest of his life when you talk about some of the weird behavior after the that major at, at, car accident? There's plus, so but, many questions. Plus all the marital problems at the end, which were yep. an absolute disaster. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the whole thing about, you know, you mentioned there about you know, his head being the size of a pumpkin. It, it, like you said, there were several points when issues with Brian's health came up. You know, there was... You mentioned, like, in 1993, he was diagnosed as an alcoholic, you know, and, and, and was told then, you know, you need to pack this in. And, again, when he went to get the life insurance at the end of 1995, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he couldn't get a lot of insurance. Again, it's part of the reason why he, you know, kind of went the route he did. He wanted, actually, to get a Screen Actors Guild card because he wanted insurance so bad. Um, and it was just, yeah, it, it was a tough deal. And I don't know, like you say, I mean, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in Brian's whole life because... In addition to that question that you posed there, Brian, I think that I, I wonder if he'd have chosen hockey instead of football, which way his, his, his life would have gone. Because I'm not sure if he would have necessarily had the uh, maybe the need, I guess, to use steroids quite so much if, if he'd have gone to a different athletic endeavor. But then again, with, with the nature of his personality, who knows if he would have found something else that was uh, you know, equally um, unsuitable for his health. Yeah, I mean, the one the one thing with the, the hockey is, is because of where he lived, you know, um, you know, kids didn't really. I I think that there were more opportunities for football than hockey for him, at, at because yeah. of, because yeah, of living sure. in Cincinnati. If he had lived in Toronto, he probably would have been a hockey player. And yeah, I don't. I think yeah. you know one 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 of the things it was an overriding theme of his entire life is that you know he you know his size you know immediately and and every in everything you know and I mean in high school football his size was a detriment. You know, in the sense that not yeah. not on the field, but in the sense that like people didn't take him seriously, and he ended up being like one of the greatest high school football players in the history of you know Cincinnati and and the Ohio and, and Ohio. But and in college, I mean, it's like you know the whole the whole Brian thing where he was you know the the only all city player not to get any college offers. Then he goes to college um, as you know a walk. He was a walk on who ended up being an all American 
first team all american division yeah. one double a second team all american but it, but the whole thing so and of course he's the only member of the all american team not to be drafted by in the nfl and you know it's just the the whole theme and you know you know you know from talking to kim and i and you know i mean brian was was put it you know he got a look in camp but there was no way he was going to make the team it wasn't even a consideration until he was killing people in practice and it was kind of like whoa whoa what the hell Who, who's this guy i mean that's and that's yeah. really what happened yeah and it was, it was a recurring theme because the same thing had happened at miami of ohio and actually it happened in high school too at Norwood high it was, it was the recurring theme was brian pillman would be looked at like he was too small, he'd be given the worst equipment, he'd get the worst of everything, but he would also just be given like an inch of a chance. And, and Brian is the classic example of give an inch and take a mile. And that was really the case in, in, in every kind of athletic endeavor he had. And I think that, again, one of the interesting things about the Bengals, like you say, he wasn't brought in to be on the team. He was brought in, quite frankly, as kind of a political move. Um, yeah. He was brought in because it was, it was, it was going to be a nice story locally. Um, because he, he, you know, the Brian Pillman story with the, with the background and, and the throat surgeries and everything, it made for a nice media situation uh, locally. Um, but again, you know, he, he was killing people in practice. Those first three days of practice, he was just laying people out left, right, and center. And and again, one of the reasons why against wanting to do this book was the the depth of the story itself of Brian getting injured in minicamp when he was at the Bengals and the things he had to do to get over off the field that were almost as kind of impressive and, and almost as kind of important in making an impression and, and making people, you know, you know, kind of want him around, for lack of a better term. I mean, he, he really won a lot of people over with his personality and the kind of the, the, the wacky things he would do. It really appealed to the nature of, of football, of, of the guys at that time. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that... Um, when you look at Brian, generally speaking, I mean, he has this, like I said, he has the pattern of he always, he always has to kind of overachieve. He doesn't get, he doesn't get given anything. He has to take everything. I mean, even, even having so much time out of the mini camp with what was actually a torn hamstring, which would have kind of sidelined most people completely. I mean, he was so driven and so determined that he was, and unfortunately, again, this kind of ties into the end of his life in the last year, relentlessly trying to come back with that torn hamstring in minicamp because he knew he had to get on the field so that he could smash people up some more so that he could force their hand so that they would give him a chance the same way he, he did in, in Miami of Ohio. You know, one of the people who you know you, you, you talked to a lot in the book was Mark Coleman, the, the UFC uh, heavyweight champion, former UFC heavyweight champion. Mm. And, I mean, it's, it's funny to read because Mark Coleman was a really tough guy. And, and Mark Coleman, I mean, I remember the stories. Mark Coleman... Um, I think he was a couple of years younger than Brian, so I think he got there when Brian was like a star football player, and Mark was a badass wrestler, and he was a badass high school football player too, um, you know. But but Mark idolized Brian Pillman. It was interesting because I, I didn't know yeah. this stuff, but where he would see Brian in the weight room, you know, and Brian was very very strong at that point in his life. You know, he was lifting very heavy weights because he was on steroids and everything like that. But uh, I mean, he was you know squatting four what six and benching 425 which is real significant yeah. weight you know um especially for for a guy who wasn't that gigantic and um yeah yeah I, I was it was you know again i knew some of the mark coleman stuff but i didn't know i didn't realize like again like um it was just interesting reading how 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 much mark coleman idolized brian yeah there's actually a great story that i didn't put in the book and just for space reasons but after the incident where Brian and, and Mark Coleman actually met where Brian kind of put the fear of God in Mark Coleman, which, you know, think about what that would take. 
Um, and yeah, he you know, kind of left the scene all nervous and anxious, and he didn't really, you know, want, know, what, know what to make of Brian Pillman. And he told me that whenever something like that would happen in his life, uh, Mark Coleman, he would say that in, in some, someone intimidated him or made him feel lesser than, than, yeah, than what he wanted to be as, as a tough guy, he would always think to himself, give me one year you know, to train, to mentally prepare, whatever, and I will make you feel the way you've just made me feel. And he would always think that. And when, he, when, when that happened with Brian, he said that with Brian, I thought it would take two years. And that's the only person I've ever thought that about. So that, that kind of ties into that kind of you know, idolizing of, of this guy that had this profound effect on him. Just think that kind of just how intense he was. I mean, there's so many stories in the book about it, just how intense and driven as a football player. I mean, this guy, think that, there, was, there was an incident in high school where one of the coaches laughed at how small he was, and so he didn't get a vote for the All-Star team, even though his stats warranted it. And because of that, Brian, you know, dismayed, went to the weight room, and he put on about 30 pounds, 30 to 40 pounds over the summer. And, of course, you can draw your own conclusions as to how that happened, but... The, to do that takes such incredible drive and such focus. I mean, he was, oh, and he was eating, he was eating nothing but eating. He was, he was eating like crazy. I remember him telling me that story yeah. about just eating like crazy because he was so, yeah, because he felt that, you know, he wasn't, he had, he had to get bigger for, you know, because they weren't taking him seriously. And I mean, you know, look, look, look yeah. you know, I remember once when they had, um, on on uh, Nitro and and Ventura was there and Jim Ross who knew Brian's stats and everything and mentioned that he was a you know a nose tackle right you know and and Brian's you know five eight and three quarters probably and you know maybe about one ninety five at this point although he was probably two twenty five when he played in, in in college which is tiny for that position and Ross is <laughs> and Ross Ross brings up you know second team All American um, nose tackle nose guard and Jesse Ventura is thinks thinks that Ross just told a joke. You know, he's just like laughing, yeah. you know, like like either he's like making it up like like Jack Swagger was a Heisman Trophy candidate or or he's just, you know, telling him a joke, trying to make him laugh because it was so <laughs> preposterous to Jesse Ventura, who knew a little bit about football, that that Brian could have been an all-American football player. Yeah, and, and, and I think that exchange actually I put it in the book because it, it was so pronounced when I when I was like looking through all these old pages like that. That exchange between Ross and Ventura, where Ventura basically says nose tackle, wasn't Ron Simmons a nose tackle? And and as Jim Ross says, yes, he was, but but Brian was too. And Jesse just goes, well, Ron Simmons is your more traditional nose tackle, in my opinion. Like again, that's like how classic is that? Like he wouldn't even he wouldn't even give it the time of day. Well, you know the funny part about Ron Simmons that people don't know is that Ron Simmons, who was a great college football player, better than Brian. Ron, Ron Simmons, the reason he never played NFL was because Ron Simmons was considered too small for that position. I mean, he was considered yeah. not, not too small for college, but too small for the pros. And here's Brian, who was much smaller than Ron Simmons. And, you know, Brian was, you know, an All-American football player at that position. And, you know, imagine, like, the, the you know, from, from the NFL standpoint, you know, I mean, they just, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, um, but, but yeah, it was just a... a yeah, you know, a, a different a different situation. I mean, you you know, the other thing, like you know, you talked about. I mean, you know, I, I almost hate to say this, but Brian Brian had that classic small man's thing, and it was like you know he yeah. would see Lex Luger, who's you know the prime example, because God, we talked about Lex all the time, and it wasn't a personal thing, you know, although in some ways it was, but but and Sid even more than Lex Luger, you know, when you detailed the whole Sid thing. Oh yeah, you know, Brian, Br believe me, Brian. I, he called me the night after the the squeegee thing, and he's telling me the whole story. But 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 Brian absolutely not. I mean, 
he was not in fear of him and i mean i i, I mean I, I can tell and everyone anyone who was there will tell you the same thing i mean i wasn't there i mean i only heard his version of the story but i heard from i also heard from other people who were there i mean brian was looking i don't want to say he was looking to fight sid because that's a little stronger but he wasn't looking not to fight him. I can tell you that for sure because I think I think that there was a part of him because Sid comes in, and then you know, and Brian he's ready to fight him, and Sid like you know like you know he had like he pulls up his sleeve and there's like a bandaid on or something like that or a bandage and he'd like he'd like had a muscle tear and everything like that and it's like yeah, it's not worth ruining my career over over this and he kind of left and that's yeah. I think he came and that's when he came back with a squeegee but um, came back with it yeah. <laughs> But but um, the whole the whole thing was is you know Brian Brian's sitting there and I mean I I hey, I was at the Meadowlands that night you know the match that that I think you probably wrote about oh yeah and and I mean Sid gave him nothing I mean and it was it was just like I know it was like it's like look I know I'm gonna lose to you but you know I'm I am a babyface give me something and Sid was it's not credible and I remember Brian like I tackled guys bigger than you in the NFL you know and and Sid just wouldn't sell nothing for him and. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it, was, it was a tough deal. I mean, it, it was kind of a, an interesting thing when uh, when I got the story about him, you know, trying to pick a fight with Wahoo McDaniel at like Flair's birthday party. I like, saw that. That was at my. my were, yeah, that was actually at almost at my feet. They were about you know, I mean, like <laughs> eight, eighteen inches, two feet away from me when they're rolling around on the ground. Yeah, at Ric Flair's birthday party. Yeah. But like, if he if he thought that he was going to find, I mean, yeah, I don't know how how like you say how deeply personal it was with Sid. I know that there was obviously bad blood there from the Meadowlands situation you mentioned, and, and you know, Sid had a had a skill for rubbing people the wrong way with the things he would say and do. But um, yeah, I also think that again, if he could kind of convince, you know, if he could take on these some of these guys that they perceived as as because I, mean, I don't think that he perceived Sid Vicious as a tough guy, regardless of, of whether he was or what. Um, and I think with Wahoo, I, I, you know, he knew the rep that Wahoo had. I remember Shane Douglas had said to me, and it's in the book, about how he felt that that's the kind of thing that Brian would do sometimes. If he thought that it would gain him respect or change people's perspective on him a little bit, you know, he'd consider it. You know, he, he, would, he would let people, he would push people's buttons sometimes. Yeah, well, I remember, I remember like one thing when, when, when um, um, what was it, when, when Watts was kind of, you know, Watts was kind of a bully anyway. When, when Watts was doing yeah. the thing where he was trying to, mess with his contract and trying to intimidate brian and i remember it was it was this was, it was actually honky tonk man t going through the story and and again it's like oh you know bill watts is going to bully uh little brian pillman but but he backed down from rick rude and i mean the whole thing is is that like you know and rick rude was a was was a really tough guy but the whole thing was is that no matter what brian did i mean i think that everybody still saw him as little brian pillman and you know even yeah. even in even in, even in wrestling even you know whatever his background was and everything like that it was it was still little little brian pillman you know yeah and that's, that's a hot when, when you get a stigma like that especially in a company as kind of colorblind and tone deaf as wcw was that's pretty hard to shake and, and they didn't have a great track record with promoting new you know, new guys of their own to being genuine stars anyway so if they if, if they could put a rap on you i mean they would and it would keep it and again to me the part of the brilliance with Brian is that when he was doing that whole loose cannon stuff, he was so good. I never heard anybody say that he was too small then during that period of time because his personality was so big and so broad. It almost made it a non-factor. Yeah, yeah. I remember like uh, the, the, the um, that that horrible, 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 what was the name of the, the triple-decker cage? What was that man? Oh, Doomsday. Doomsday. 
yeah, doomsday the, cage that match. really horrible cage match and and you know brian was supposed to be one of the eight guys that hogan and randy savage were going to beat and possibly the guy that hogan was probably going to pin at the end and yeah, of course you know, I mean, and, and he was he wasn't originally, you know, he, they were doing the whole thing where Brian was was at odds with the company as a work. And so he wasn't wrestling. And then Hogan just saw all the attention Brian was getting. So Hogan like was like, we got to get Brian in this match. So, you know, and and Brian, I mean, I remember this, you know, it's like Brian's telling me about how, you know, Hogan wants him in the match. And he's going, you know, do you think um, do you think he's going to want to pin me? And I go, I think so. And it's just like so brian comes up with this you know he needs you know emergency throat surgery and he gets out of it and they know because kevin sullivan who's not a dumb guy at, at all kevin sullivan he uh, knows he knows that it's an elective surgery and brian really doesn't need it this month but brian had the surgery and it's just like and he's just trying to talk brian into doing the match and brian's just like he's you know I mean, I mean, we didn't know the match was going to be as bad as it was, and, it, and it, it is considered one of the worst matches in the history of professional wrestling, if you ever want to watch it. And But but we knew it was going to be terrible, and we knew it wasn't going to be a good thing for him to be involved in it. And so, yeah, he, he had he had throat surgery to remove polyps that month or something. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, again, one of the funny things about it is that when yeah, Hogan was being worked as well, you know, and, and you know, Bischoff didn't get into a habit of yeah, kind of not appearing to Hogan very often, but he was he was pretty much yeah, you know, it, it was him and Sullivan at that point in time. Yeah, they were the only ones. Hogan, they were the only ones. And then when they did that deal on Nitro when he was in the crowd, that was it was, it was Hogan was watching it, and you know, I got you know the, the story as, as it goes is he went straight. He told. Um, Oh, what's her name? The the the, the assistant. Um, Jenny oh, Angle. That's the one, Jane Angle. That's the name I was reaching for. He tells Jane Angle, "Tell Bischoff to go to hell," and she goes and she tells Ed Bischoff while he's on a commercial break at Nitro, sitting at the desk, that Hogan's figured it out because Hogan knew an angle when he saw one. You know, he, you know, he was he was he was one of the, the sharper guys, better or worse. And uh, and, and, and it, was, it was that week. It was that week. We said, "Okay, it's going to go from one four to two on eight, and Brian's in the match." Yeah, and I don't want to hear that he's not. I don't want to hear that he's not in the company because I know that he is. Yeah, yeah, and they begged Brian to do that match over and over again, but he just, you know, he got <laughs> he got a he got a note from his doctor, and he didn't do the match. Yeah, and WCW just kept on advertising him. Yeah, 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 because they, they thought they were going to talk him into it, or who 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 the hell knows, you know that that they. Yeah. <laughs> now you you interviewed a lot of different people for this book, all sorts of people, past and present. And, I mean, the obvious question now is, are you considering writing another book on another topic? Uh, at the minute, I'm kind of wanting to see how far this one goes. It's, uh, it, it's, it's doing real well. It's, it, it's, um, it's getting a lot of, like I say, just the responses in general. It was, it's kind of exceeded my expectations a little bit, to be quite honest. So I'm kind of looking to see how far this goes. But there's, there's always, you know, there are other fascinating characters that have appealed to me. Um, so I'm kind of... Yeah, there are certain names that kind of flick around in my head. I really think that Eddie Gilbert's been a bit lost to history, and I would love to kind of get into something like that. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, yeah, there's a few guys that kind of is batting around a few different subjects. But for right now, I'm going to try and see how this thing goes. And, now, did is, you, there any, is, is there is there any any talk of a movie or anything? Because as I'm reading this book, that's spinning in my head is like you know, and I never thought of it when he was alive, and I never really thought of it until I was reading the book and putting everything together. And I'm reading the book, going like, you know, this is actually. Um, this, you know, this this is actually a movie. 
I mean, it really is. It's it's and it's a and it's a great one too. You know, with the with the tragic ending, and I mean that freaking stuff with the kids and everything. You know, because I didn't, uh, I didn't. I mean, I I didn't know the stuff with the kids until way later. I mean, eventually I did, but but you know, I mean that's the tragedy. Is you know, Brian loved those kids, and you know, and and Brian, yeah. that's wrestling, Brian Pillman Jr. I mean, he legitimately, he was, what, four or five years old when, when his father died. And, yeah. and I mean, I mean, he really has no memories at all. So his, his, his knowledge of his father is what people tell him. And his father is, his, is clearly his hero, you know, so it's kind of like, yeah. you know, when I thought of it that way, you know, it's like, oh, my God, you know, poor little, you know, Brian and everything. And then, and the other kids and just it, it was, you know, everything. I mean, that's that's to me, that's the big tragedy is everything that he wanted in that sense. It ended up being like as bad as it could ever be. And it was like that was if, if yeah. you could like avoid, you know, like he, he'd have died and he literally would have he'd have died if he thought that in the end, the kids would have had a great life. And unfortunately, you wow. know, that didn't happen. No, I, I, I mean, it was it's it, it's the the last no, you know, the last third or so of the book where things are really going downhill and then the stuff afterwards with the family, that was so horrible. To I mean, you know, you two guys know what it's like when it comes to writing stuff like that, but it's, I mean, it, it was, it's, it's not it's not nice, it's not pretty, and it's, yeah, that, that stuff is no. extremely sad and it's there. I mean, I, I, did, I did get the nicest message from Brian Jr. talking about how, you know, reading this book, it's like he's actually learning more about him than he ever knew. Like from, from even from oh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. Life, yeah. Which uh, which was at, a, at one point I almost want to take it as a compliment, but at the same time it's so it's, kind of heartbreaking that it's you know, uh, so yeah, it's, it's not good. And as to whether or not it's um, you know kind of fit for the silver screen, there's there's been some interest, so we'll see where it goes. Um, like I said, when I've been before, we're talking about the next book project or whatever i'm kind of hoping to to see where this goes because there's been uh, been some talks on that front but uh you know nothing nothing for sure so we'll see where we'll see where it goes but um yeah i just think that when it comes to the kids i mean i remember you saying to me that the last thing he would have wanted was for the kids to be messed up and unfortunately that is the way things turned out but at the same time there there is a happier ending with brian jr and Brittany, and i was i was very happy to be able to put that in at the end yeah 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 Let's get some plugs in for this book. Crazy Like a Fox, The Definitive Chronicle of Brian Pillman 20 Years Later, Liam O'Rourke. You can find it on Amazon.com. And let's get some plugs in for everything else you got working on, other places people might be able to find the book, your social media, and more. Yeah, sure. So obviously, yeah, we've been talking about the book all day. You can get it on Amazon. It's the best place to go. Uh, in about two or three weeks, the Kindle version will be released, which a lot of people have been uh, asking me for. So uh, that will be available shortly. I'll, let, I'll uh, send out a note when that's the case. Uh, on Twitter, you can get me at LiamOrock86. Uh, it's where you can find me. So that's uh, probably the place to go. All right, Liam, I want to thank you so much for doing the show today. As Dave noted, the book is awesome. I mean, it's an excellent it's, book, it's, not just on Brian Pillman, but that entire period yeah, it's World great, Championship Wrestling and WWF. It's, it's a great, it's a great book. Yeah, and 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 WWF as well. But really, those WCW years in the nineties, um, it's it's tremendous in the sense of the, you know, and I guess you know from talking to Kim Wood and other people, you probably got you know Mark Madden and stuff. But I mean, you really, you really got the flavor of WCW in that in that era, which was a in, in a completely crazy company, and just reading through the stuff of. You know his ups and downs and different trials and then a new booker comes in and all the stuff that he went through it was it was absolutely fascinating 
No, thank, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. I really do. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing the show today. Check it out, everybody. And that is it from here. We'll talk to you again after a while.